Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. This is part six of our six-part series on consciousness and the brain with Professor Stuart Hameroff of the Banner University Medical Center at the University of Arizona, where he is a professor of anesthesiology and psychology. He is the co-founder and director of the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona. He is also the organizer of the annual Science of Consciousness conference that has been held at the University of Arizona and elsewhere for more than 20 years now. In addition, Professor Hameroff is the co-author of the Orc Or theory of consciousness that he developed along with the great mathematical physicist Sir Roger Penrose, one of the developers of the theory of black holes. Welcome. Thank you, Jeffrey. Stuart, it's a pleasure to be with you. Now, we've covered an awful lot in the uh, first five episodes of, of this series, and it's going to be hard to uh, recapitulate all of that for viewers who may not have had the opportunity to listen in earlier, but we should say at the outset that your theory of consciousness, the orc-or theory, is, is one that entails not only the conventional thinking about the brain and electrical transmission along the uh, neurons, but also deals with deeper structures inside of the brain called microtubules and how those structures connect uh, with the universe at the quantum level. Yes, that's right. Um, I think uh, looking at the brain as a uh, as a computer made of individual neurons is naive and and probably wrong. And that we need to look deeper inside the neurons. And uh, there we find these structures called microtubules that process information and appear that they are quantum uh, processors that they connect to the quantum world and uh, perhaps deeper and deeper levels of space-time geometry, giving rise to non-locality, including uh, action at a distance and uh, and various uh, various non-localities that could be consistent with uh, parapsychology and even spirituality. Mm -hmm. And we've also talked at some length about how your work as an anesthesiologist, taking people in and out of consciousness on a regular basis in the operating room, has uh, shaped your approach to the study of consciousness. Yes, it has. You know, I've been doing it for 40 years, and still, every time someone you, you push the propofol or you give them anesthetic gas, it's still a mystery of where do they go? But the real question is why they're here in the first place. Mm -hmm. And studying anesthesia allows us to, to pinpoint, uh, since anesthesia is fairly selective at erasing consciousness, sparing other brain functions, and, and reversible, to pinpoint the action, uh, the, the site of action of consciousness or the mechanism of consciousness by looking at where anesthetics act. And now it's looking at that they act in microtubules in what are called quantum channels, regions within microtubules uh, with pi resonance uh, uh, structures uh, from aromatic rings that give give rise to uh, quantum uh, quantum events that can allow this connection to space-time geometry. Mm -hmm. That's a mouthful. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, pi resonance structures from yeah. aromatic rings. Could right. you break that down? Yeah. A little? So uh, um, aromatic rings are are uh, are structures like benzene 
or uh, phenyl rings or indole rings that have uh, extra electrons that are delocalized. So they're not attached to any one carbon atom. They're actually spread out and form a cloud of delocalized electrons. Mm -hmm. And this gives rise to uh, quantum, quantum effects because they can be a uh, dipole over here and a dipole over here at the same time in a superposition. And we know that uh, plants utilize something like this in photosynthesis uh, to, to in, uh, give rise to quantum coherence, which allows the efficiency of, of, uh, of photosynthesis. And it's looking like microtubules have these quantum resonances, according to the, the great work of Anurban Bandyapati, and resonances that are quantum in, in various frequency ranges. It's, so the microtubules kind of look like a, a musical instrument um, mediating quantum uh, vibrations. Mm -hmm. And your theory, the orc or theory, the, the, the first phrase there, orc, or the first syllable, yeah. represents uh, consciousness as an orchestration. Right. So that would be what's, what happens in the brain in the microtubules to give rise to the full rich consciousness that we have as opposed to proto-consciousness <coughs> that's happening here, there, and everywhere in the universe. And uh, so I think consciousness is kind of like uh, the kind of consciousness we have. Uh, I liken it to an orchestra. So if an orchestra is warming up before they start playing, they have these uh, these disconnected tones, eh, uh, uh, they're all tuning their, their mm -hmm. uh, instruments, and it's not music, it's tones, it's noise, it's sound, and, y and then all of a sudden, they break into the symphony, or if it's a rock band, or a jazz band, or whatever, music. We know the difference between music and noise, and I think that's the difference between consciousness and proto-consciousness. When this orchestration occurs in the brain, though, I. I I presume, and maybe you can clarify if I'm not correct about this, it's a kind of quantum coherence. Yes, yes. I think you need quantum coherence for, for example, binding. Uh, you know, we, we, we look at a visual scene like this one, and we, there's vision, there's sound, there's smell, sometimes there's taste, uh, there's memories, and yet uh, these aren't, and the different uh, sensations are processed in different brain regions and even at different times, yet they're all unified or bound into one conscious experience. Mm -hmm. I have a visual scene that correlates with, the, with what I'm hearing and, and everything else of what's going on. So it's not, you know, a hodgepodge here and there, it's one, it's one scene. And that, I think, involves quantum coherence and quantum entanglement in, mm -hmm. in the brain. Now, the philosopher and psychologist Susan Blackmore, who is something of a skeptic uh, of, of these ideas, uh, talks about the self as being nothing more than a concept that, that we have. But when you talk about the coherent orchestra that uh, creates consciousness, that might be thought of as, as an actual self. Yes, I think the self where there's one of us, there's I'm me and you're you, is a unified uh, uh, quantum coherent uh, sense of self. It's a, it's a quantum coherence. Of course, Sue Blackmore and other reductionists would deny consciousness even, that it's a concept. It's, it's kind of an illusion. So I think... Uh, uh, it, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. So I think people like that really don't have a clue about what consciousness is, and so they kind of dismiss it. Uh, they uh, they say, well, it's not really anything. It's uh, postmodern deconstruction. They chop it up into little bits, and in the end, there's nothing left. Mm -hmm. But you're suggesting what we might think of as a more platonic view, that, that some things are real and even eternal in the universe, like mathematical ideas, aesthetics, morals, and, and that this is uh, intrinsic to the universe itself. Our conscious 
our consciousness, our minds, are able to access this platonic world. Yes, that was Roger Penrose's idea that uh, when collapse occurs, it's associated with consciousness and the choices are not random as they would be in other interpretations of, qu of quantum mechanics, but are influenced by platonic values. And platonic values including mathematical truths, which are kind of encoded in the fine scale structure of the universe, but also aesthetic and ethical values. So if something is pleasing, it's because it resonates with a deeper level structure. If something feels good, if something uh, 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 tastes good, or if you feel happy, it's because you're resonating with deeper level structures of the universe. That's the basic idea. You know, earlier I asked you um, in a private meeting that we had, what do you think, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? And you gave me an interesting <laughs> answer. Yes, I've been thinking about evolution and the idea that uh, these uh, these proto-conscious events that could give rise to good feelings were present uh, in the primordial soup before consciousness before uh, life uh, originated and actually were the were the spark was the, the spark of life actually that life organized in order to to take advantage and access and optimize feelings and that uh, this played a key role in evolution that uh, species evolved to optimize feeling good. So I guess the uh, the meaning of life or the purpose of life would be to feel good and by that I mean by resonating with deeper level structures of the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, of course there are hedonists and Epicureans right. and, and others who talk about the pleasure principle, but I get a sense that when you talk about feeling good, you're talking about something that might even be akin to the idea of wisdom, some sort of deep alignment with the universe itself. Well, I think knowing and understanding is a pleasurable feeling also, and certainly that <coughs> that would be one. And uh, I have thought of terming this quantum hedonism, but you know, even altruism, mm -hmm. you know, it, uh, it's better to give than to receive. It feels better to give than to receive. And if you live a spiritual uh, life and uh, and are uh, meditating and, and reverent and so forth, that makes you feel good. So feeling good is, is kind of not just the hedonistic, uh, you know, immediate gratification. It could be, uh, you know, higher level, more uh, altruistic and spiritual approaches that, mm -hmm. that also make you feel good. Whatever, whatever floats your boat. And there's all kinds of people. Well, you know, it's very unusual for a scientist such as yourself to be talking about the spiritual implications of a scientific theory. Most scientists wouldn't dare to go there, uh, but you seem quite comfortable doing it, not only because of your personality, but I think because you feel that there's scientific justification. I think there is, in my own experience, you know, I'm, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I, I am a spiritual and I do feel a connection and there have been so many uh, things in my life that uh, are just not, cannot be ascribed to coincidence, just uh, insights I've had or premonitions or feelings that turn out to be correct. And so I think there is something to it, but it, it's hard to prove this, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, but it just feels right to me. And I think, uh, I think that if consciousness is a quantum effect or involves quantum mechanics, then non-locality and interaction over distance is all possible. Until we really know for sure what consciousness is in the brain, we can't exclude it out of the brain. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the recent research that has uh, come up concerning uh, what happens to the brain at the end of life and how this might be related to your theory. Right. Um, 
So uh, uh, in anesthesia, we use brain monitors that, that measure EEG. We, we use simple electrodes here because it's, it's too difficult to do uh, 32 or 16 electrodes. So we use these simple strip, strip electrodes on devices that were designed to measure depth of anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And uh, they process the, the, the data, they take EEG, they take maybe a, a muscle tone of the forehead. They don't really tell us what they, what they take because it's proprietary, but they give a, a number, mm -hmm. zero to 100. And um, uh, 80 to 100 would be awake. So presumably, if we measured ours now, it would be t between 80 and 100. Uh, they, they say that if the, your patient under anesthesia is between 40 and 60, they're not awake. Mm -hmm. And these were designed to prevent awareness under anesthesia. Mm -hmm. uh, there's problems with them because they're telling you what happened a couple minutes ago. So I personally don't use them because I, I don't want to know what happened two minutes ago. I want to know what's happening now. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're useful and a lot of people do use them. Now, uh, a doctor named uh, Lakmir Chawla at George Washington University, who's a palliative, he's an intensivist and uh, a palliative care specialist and takes care of people as, as they die. So if someone's terminal and they and or the family make a decision to uh, withdraw care, uh, Charla wanted to make sure they were comfortable and uh, to give them painkillers if they needed it or just, so we started using these, these brain devices mm -hmm. and what they found was that some of them were, uh, were already at low levels, in some cases brain damaged, and uh, or, or even brain dead, mm -hmm. and uh, th they put these numbers on. Although, um, and what they found was that in not in the brain dead uh, subjects, but in the other subjects, what they found was that this number would dwindle, say from 50ish down to about 10, when or or below when the heart stopped, mm -hmm. and it doesn't. It, it there's a little noise, so it never actually goes to zero, and. And then when the heart is stopped, the blood pressure is gone, or there's no blood pressure, uh, they, they saw in a good percentage of patients, about half the patients, a spike uh, or a, a sudden uh, upsurge of activity uh, when, the, when the body was, was dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as anyone can tell, of course, defining clinical death is another question. But um, when they analyzed this, uh, th so the number went up to, in some cases, 80 to 100, mm -hmm. but uh, above 50 in, in, in a general upswing. And when they analyzed it in the machine, it was, it was highly coherent. And in fact, gamma synchrony, uh, which is a, a marker of consciousness, and in fact, even, even very high frequency gamma, above, above normal gamma. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, some people say, well, it's just the last, last ditch uh, gasp of neurons firing and not firing. But it's not firing, it's actually gamma synchrony and it's coherent across both hemispheres so it's it's hard to explain that uh, it, it's hard to account for the fact that um, that this could be uh, uh, just uh, random last ga gasp activities mm hmm so you know what does it mean well you know some people say you know some people would like to believe it's the soul leaving the body uh, it could be. We don't really know. Mm -hmm. We don't have a good explanation otherwise. But it's something that can be studied and looked at in the future. It reminds me of a phenomenon that's been discussed quite a bit amongst uh, parapsychologists with whom I interact called terminal lucidity. That uh, uh, It's been observed clinically that uh, people shortly before they die, uh, I observed it with my own mother who had Alzheimer's, but shortly before she died, she entered into a state of hyper-awareness and uh, where she was extraordinarily articulate and uh, it's, as, it's as if uh, something like that sort might be going on. Yes, and uh, Peter Fennick, who has uh, studied uh, death and dying for many, many years and is very articulate on this, uh, talks about deathbed experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I actually saw this with my mother, and I had heard Peter speak about it. And I was is a very moving uh, where 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 uh, people who are terminal in their last days or even weeks uh, often are sort of half here and half there. They're being well, we don't know where, but they're they appear to be in communication with deceased relatives, mm -hmm. and uh, and almost. Uh, 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 are annoyed that you're uh, that you're uh, distracting them, and I saw this with my mother, and uh, she uh, just shortly before she died, she just started talking to my father, who had been dead for a l many many years, mm -hmm. and uh, and and didn't really and kind of ignored me, and and didn't really want to, and, and was just addressing him. I mean, he at the foot of the bed, presumably, mm -hmm. she saw him, and uh, they were he she was carrying on half of a conversation, and. Uh, I was amazed because it, it was so much like what Peter Fenwick had described in many, many subjects. So it's not just, you know, here or there. It's, it's a fairly common phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you are not a philosophical dualist, to Correct. my knowledge. You are a uh, panpsychist, might well, be. Well, a panpsychist in a way, but the term that term usually uh, uh, is, is meant to imply consciousness as a property of matter mm -hmm. and I think it's before matter because matter forms during collapse so mm -hmm. I'm more of a pan experientialist and uh, ascribe uh, I think matter itself is very transient because it collapses then immediately goes it collapses to give a material object then and then immediately goes into superposition usually at a very small scale so it all averages out so uh, more of a uh, pan uh, pan collapsist if there's such a term because <laughs> I think collapse is yeah. occurring constantly everywhere and it's creating the universe and when that happens I think there's moments of proto-consciousness and when we put it all together we get the kind of consciousness we have and and by collapse we're referring uh, from the transition from w what you could call a quantum wave function where things are spread out and maybe in many locations at once to being in a particular definitely right place. giving rise to the classical world that we experience mm -hmm. we don't see the we don't see the superpositions we see the result of the collapse and that gives rise to consciousness mm -hmm. that's that's the basic idea well th this sets the stage for my question now about uh, it's usually dualists who are associated with the idea that there is a spiritual world and yet i i hear you uh, being quite open-minded to that idea, a spiritual world that might uh, we might access in our dreams or that we might access after death. You've even suggested the possibility of reincarnation, that the self can maintain its coherence and its structure uh, outside of the body and perhaps uh, enter into another body. I think you can't say it's impossible. I think it's it's possible. I think that under normal circumstances right now in your brain and my brain, consciousness is happening in and around the microtubules in the space-time geometry that, that, that comprise them. And uh, if, if uh, blood stops flowing and, and the heart stops beating and uh, the microtubules uh, eventually lose energy and the quantum information isn't lost or destroyed but can kind of dissipate or delocalize to the universe at large but remain entangled mm -hmm. uh, so that a self uh, it wouldn't all just just scatter but remain entangled as an entity as a uh, as a person as as the self or the soul quantum soul if you want to use that term and uh, if it's a cardiac arrest and the patient's resuscitated can go uh, the quantum soul if you want to call it that can go back inside and the patient said, hey, I had a near-death experience. I saw a white light. I talked to my deceased relatives. I had the sense of calm and 
uh, wonderment and generally these people have changed uh, forever in a good way um, and uh, uh, or maybe even floating out of their body in an out-of-body experience having that experience um, but if the patient is not resuscitated if the patient mm -hmm. dies then what happens to this uh, quantum soul well we don't know but uh, it can persist it conceivably can it can persist and perhaps enter another set of microtubules somewhere a zygote or an embryo or another person and in reincarnation there's a lot of very interesting anecdotal evidence for reincarnation and so we can't rule it out until mm -hmm. we know what consciousness is i think all bets are off and these things are possible and not just anecdotal evidence at the university of virginia yes. they've accumulated well over i believe two thousand cases of young children who uh, as soon as they're able to speak begin reporting memories yeah. of a, a previous lifetime and often researchers are able to uh, identify those memories with an actual previous life in you know a nearby village or some other location in which the details turn out to be accurate yeah there uh, Grayson uh, Bruce Grayson and Jim Tucker and those people have done uh, amazing work Jim Tucker's a pedi pediatrician who uh, our pediatric psychologist I'm not sure and and he studied a lot of these and his stories are quite interesting and quite convincing mm -hmm. so could be it seems as if you're willing to say that a, a serious scientist such as yourself uh, looking at the brain looking at consciousness looking at the structure of neurons uh, needs to uh, be open to this kind of data I think so. You know, if you if you're really a rigorous scientist, you can't uh, you can't let your biases uh, uh, you know over override what's conceivable. And people who are materialist reductionists rule out a priori the possibility of non-locality, and therefore can't accept uh, what I just said and mm -hmm. what you've suggested, and uh, you know claim the high road in science. But I think they're wrong. I think they're fooling themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very important because uh, they do, in fact, uh, claim that they're being more scientific than than people who uh, uh, are open to these possibilities. And uh, it strikes me as, as ironic that uh, 150 years of uh, careful research papers, uh, many of them contributed by some of the great scientists of, of their era, uh, that that some people feel. Uh, comfortable not just ignoring but treating this data with scorn yeah uh, they take uh, the uh, more rational than thou I like to call their attitude yeah. as in holier than thou because mm -hmm. they claim the scientific high road and it's true they you know they control a lot of the funding agencies and academia and uh, w and they frown on on things like we've been talking about but really until we explain consciousness uh, we can't rule these things out and I, th I think that's why consciousness is the most interesting question there is it's also the most important Thing there is. If we mm -hmm. didn't have consciousness, we, we wouldn't have anything. If you don't, and if you don't have a, a good consciousness, if you're not happy, then it's you know that's that's a problem. So uh, you know, and if you're brain dead or you don't have consciousness, then there's nothing. So it's the most important entity in the world, and it's the most interesting scientific and philosophical question in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, you've devoted your professional career 
to uh, looking at these questions, Stuart. And it's been a pleasure sharing these uh, six conversations with you. Uh, I've been doing these interviews for a long time, and this is the first time that I've actually done a six-part series with someone, and, and you're the appropriate person for it because of the range of, of your thinking. I don't know of anyone else who has been able to talk about uh, biomolecular uh, <laughs> computing and nanotechnology and quantum physics and the deep structure of the neuron and integrate all of that with spiritual ideas. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm honored that, that I'm the one who, uh, who got this uh, gig uh, for six, uh, six uh, shows. And, and I might just close by saying that there are practical applications of this. For mm -hmm. example, uh, if the microtubules in the brain uh, have megahertz resonances, which they do, then stimulating them with megahertz should alter mental states and perhaps even treat mental disorders. Yep. And in fact, ultrasound, which is mechanical vibrations in, in the megahertz, is something that we use clinically in anesthesiology for imaging and it's been around for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've, we've shown in the last uh, five years, uh, three or four years, I should say, that uh, transcranial ultrasound, putting ultrasound into the brain, it does get through the skull, bounces off the brain, comes back out, uh, is painless, safe, and improves mental state, mm -hmm. uh, uh, mood. So 30 seconds of ultrasound actually gives about an hour of improved mood. And uh, we're starting studies now for depression, but also Alzheimer's, because in Alzheimer's, the microtubules fall apart. And uh, because of the resonance effect, it looks like my, uh, ultrasound stabilizes microtubules and prevents mm -hmm. their depolymerization, and also brain injury, where you want the microtubules to be active and create new synapses. So uh, I'm very pleased that, uh, uh, hopefully at least, uh, this, uh, this uh, somewhat esoteric intellectual pursuit will lead to uh, something clinically useful in ultrasound for uh, mental and cognitive disorders, including Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So in, in other words, your theory has uh, practical applications. It's, it's, you've been able to stimulate a lot of other researchers. Your theory has what we would call heuristic value in science because it, it generates uh, research ideas. But now you're talking about uh, pragmatic applications. Yeah, yeah, useful, clinically useful applications. And uh, you know, I'm all for that. Uh, I, I've enjoyed the uh, the intellectual uh, 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 pursuit. Uh, as I said, I find it the most interesting question in the world. I can't imagine anything more important. Uh, affecting all aspects of everything, including you know politics and uh, and world peace and and contentment and so forth. Uh, and if if to boot, we can uh, improve people's lives uh, by uh, TUS transcranial ultrasound to treat uh, Alzheimer's and brain injury and, and other uh, mental and cognitive disorders, all the better. Stuart Hameroff, thank you so much for being with me for this six-part series on consciousness in the brain. Thanks for having me. And thank you for being with us.